0: Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. On this week's edition, The Sunday Times reveals explosive details of the government's botched response to the coronavirus crisis. Does Boris Johnson's failure to attend five Cobra meetings and the diversion of civil service energies into Brexit during January and February indicate a fatal complacency on the government's part? Is the corona economy stupid? What new ideas and new industries will we need to get us out of this mess? Finance and economics writer Francis Coppola joins us for some blue sky economics. And the corona conspiracy industry, Who's spreading the truth about Bill Gates and his weaponized 5G virus bats? Hello, info warrior Eamon Holmes. And what can we do about them? All this and more in today's Bunker. Before we start, a small announcement. We're doing another live stream with Romaniacs on the evening of Thursday, 7th of May. We're doing it on Zoom again, and this time there'll be a registration system and moderation to keep out the trolls and racists. If you support our sister show, Romaniacs, on the crowdfunding platform Patreon, you'll get news on how to register first, and very soon. Bunker listeners, we'll announce how you can register a little nearer the time, but add it to your diary. It should be great fun. Let's say hello to our panel making her long-awaited Bunker debut as a political broadcaster, author, and Romaniacs regular. Her book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, is coming out in July. It's Nina Schick. Hello, Nina. How are you?
1: Hi. I'm I'm very well. Nice to be back.
0: How's how's lockdown with a baby? I mean, obviously, when you first <laughs> have a baby, you're in lockdown anyway, but, but it, it's not that young now.
1: <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually, you know what, I've been talking to my partner about it, and being in lockdown isn't with a young baby isn't that different from just having a baby, period. <laughs> <laughs> the disruption and lack of social life has already something I've become accustomed to. Um, I have to say, it is quite entertaining to have her around, because otherwise I might be getting a lot more bored. Um, but writing a book at the same time means it's quite challenging.
0: <laughs> I, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, you're our one-woman German desk. Why is it that you think Germany appears to be doing so much better on the corona fight than Britain? Germany has 56 deaths per million, while Britain has 243.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of speculation and, you know, so much is still unknown, but there are several theories. And one of those is that the average age of the German infected with coronavirus might be younger. It started as a, a pandemic of skiers. Um, so the average age in Germany is 49 versus 62 in France and 62 in Italy. But I think one of the main reasons is the kind of German preparedness um, and that it has been very, very good at testing. They're testing 350 thousand people a week Um, so they have been catching I think a lot more people who have no symptoms or low symptoms and if the German model is correct so that if there was widespread testing and uh, their fatality rate is lower and that's indicative of the virus as a whole I think that might mean some positive news as in that the death rate might be lower than what we've seen in other populations.
0: And Jenny Harris, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England, caught some flack for saying that the UK had been, quote, an international exemplar of preparedness when it came to PPE and testing. Um, does any country in the world agree with her? Do they, are they looking to Britain and going, that's the way to do
1: it? Absolutely not. I mean, it's it's quite <laughs> ridiculous that she made those comments. And I think that she's attracted a pretty quickly from healthcare experts. They, you know, they called her patronizing. Only last Sunday, uh, there was supposed to be a shipment of PPE coming to the UK. It's been delayed. And as for testing, we know that there has been no widespread testing. And this is probably one of the reasons why, you know, the UK stands in stark difference to countries like Germany or South Korea, where testing and tracking contact tracing was done from the very beginning. So, no, the UK is not seen as an international example.
0: Reporting live from Mykonos, Greece, it's Alex Andreou. Hello, Alex, how are you? Hello, Darian. I'm all right. <laughs> uh, and obviously, you, you would hate, even at that distance, to miss a government press conference. <laughs> on, on Sunday, they wheeled out Gavin Williamson for his, his first go. Uh, did we ho- hit rock bottom, or does Pretty Patel retain the crown? No, I don't. I don't think you can get below. I'm.
2: I'm sorry if you feel you're not wearing a visor. So no. I. I think she set the the bar for that. But these musical chairs are interesting, for what they say about Downing Street paranoia. I think because obviously it'd be better to have one constant reference point. But with Johnson indisposed, I think they'd. Terrified they might create a rival. You know, what if Rishi Sunak does particularly well and he becomes associated with being the competent side of this government? So so instead they've opted for this parade of people. So let's just co-opt as many people as possible. They'll, they'll start grabbing them off the street next. You know, here's Gary who works at Greggs to talk us through a pointless transport usage gra- Could Could...
0: Could we see Frank Mansoir slouch <laughs> slouching towards Whitehall, ready I, to uh, I don't think, take on the job? Well, it it would uh,
2: it would require some adjustments to that podium.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one, but one person who is probably not going to be our next prime minister is Matt Hancock. Uh, who seems to be you beco- think becoming uh, a sort of bit a bit of a fool guy, and the telegraph, which we know uh, tends to be fairly pro boris um, has a published briefing from Downing Street sources um, rubbishing matt hancock 's promises of one hundred thousand tests a day by the end of the month i mean it 's fair enough to rubbish him because nobody actually believed that that would be true mm. but do you think, but do you think that he is being um, set up for political reasons is there is there something unfair about this
2: I think what's going on is that there are four rings of protection around the prime minister. Basically, the first one is Duncan Selby of uh, Public Health England. Then it's uh, Whitty and Valance, the scientific and medical advisor. Then it's Matt Hancock. Then it's Dominic Cumming. So all those people will be sacked in order as sacrificial lambs if the if the water gets particularly close to the prime minister. And I think. I think the fact that after going for Public Health England last week and then the scientific advisers, they're now going for Hancock, I think that shows they, they think the water is getting quite close to Johnson, basically. So, that is, so it's
0: quite interesting. Okay. Our guest for this week is an economics writer and commentator and also a trained singer. She writes the Coppola Comment blog, which regularly appears in the FT. In her own words, like Cassandra, she's always right but never believed. <laughs> It's Francis Coppola. Hello, Francis. How are you?
3: <laughs> Hello there.
0: <laughs> um, we're going to go into this in, in a lot of detail later. But do you think coronavirus has created a completely new set of economic conditions? Is there, um, is there something that we can compare this to, the kind of, uh, the kind of recession we're looking at?
3: It's very difficult to think of an equivalent, really, because as far as I know, this is the first time in history that we've got countries around the world deliberately shut, shutting down their economies. Um, I think when we had the a century ago when there was the 1918 pandemic, which killed far more people, actually, um, we did have individual cities shutting down. Um, but at the same time, we had a war going on and troop movements all over the place and officers who decided that lockdowns didn't apply to them. Um, and so it actually wasn't very effective. Um, so um, we ended up with this massive pandemic, and that's actually probably the closest equivalent that we have. So, yeah, we are in uncharted territory.
0: And it's also created popular fear like seldom before, and we know where that can lead. Um, It's a slightly nerve-wracking thought, but is this going to be a year um, that decides the path of the next decade for good or ill, the decisions that governments make now uh, are going to shape us for a long time to come?
3: I'm actually not wholly convinced by that, because in fact, I mean, if if you look back to 2008, you might want to think that the decisions that were made in that awful year, towards the end of the year, and maybe in 2009, were the decisions that shaped the the ensuing decade. In fact, they weren't. It was the decisions in 2010 that shaped the decade. In particular, the disastrous turn to austerity to fix the public finances. If we make that mistake again, we're in big trouble.
0: Ah, okay, so if we don't fuck up this year, there's a chance to fuck up differently
3: next year. <laughs> totally.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. Let's begin with those Sunday Times revelations about the government's conduct in the weeks before the lockdown. The paper's widely circulated report suggested that the government was asleep at the wheel during the early stages of the coronavirus outbreak, with the PM reportedly missing five Cobra meetings. As the warnings mounted, Johnson instead focused on Brexit Day and a cabinet reshuffle for disappearing to Chevening for two weeks with his fiancée, Carrie Simons, and making plans for the announcement of her pregnancy and his divorce. Aides were told to keep their briefing papers short and cut the number of memos in his red box if they wanted them to be read, Sunday Times said. Alex, Boris Johnson has enjoyed a huge wave of sympathy since his hospitalisation. Not perhaps huge from us, but, but in the country. Do you think that that will carry him through these revelations? People will turn on him quite this quickly? Um, I think it probably will
2: carry him through unless the criticism begins to spread to other more Boris-friendly papers, which it might. Um, Like on the PPE issue, the mail has been making some uncomfortable noises, and if that flips... Um, That could get quite uncomfortable for them, I think.
0: And ministers were defending him, saying it was normal for a prime minister to miss Cobra meetings. And of course, it's not essential (laughs) for a prime minister to chair every single meeting. Sometimes it is the relevant secretary of state. But surely to miss just one at a time of national crisis is unfortunate, but five is unforgivable.
2: Well, to me, that very first part of your observation is more important, that every minister took to Twitter or took to uh, the airwaves to firefight this. Um, Practically every resource and communication channel this weekend was devoted to fighting these criticisms in the middle of a pandemic. So in response to the allegation they took their eye off the ball back then, they took their, their eye off the ball again, confirming what many had feared, that basically they're more interested in the PR of this than the public health angle.
0: Well, who, well, Number Ten issued a rebuttal, which was which was uh, unprecedented. They also responded to a piece by Peter Foster of the FT about the UK's plan to procure and manufacture ventilators. Who are these statements aimed at? I mean, most people are not going to to sort of go on a government website to read a rebuttal to a newspaper article. Who I, who are they targeting? I have the feeling it was just to make themselves
2: feel better. I, I mean, reading it, it's such infantile stuff like the the first point of rebuttal of the times piece is that the 24th of january is not the third week but the fourth week gotcha i mean who would fucking waste time and energy to sit and type that up i don't understand it it it, the, you know, the example they give about how Alan Johnson ran the, the, chaired the Cobra meetings during the foot-and-mouth pandemic, I looked back at that because I had a vague memory that yes, Alan Johnson chaired the meetings as the relevant minister, but Gordon Brown attended every single one of them. So their, their rebuttal is
0: even full of sort of half-truths. It's bizarre. Well, Nina, Richard Horton of the Lancet attacked the government for rewriting history uh, in this rebuttal because they'd kind of they'd they quoted one thing he'd said but not another, and they basically mis- misrepresented what he was saying back in January. Do you think this this rebuttal has backfired? Do you think that they will keep doing this every time there's an article they don't like because it doesn't it doesn't seem to have gone down well.
1: Yeah, I think holistically, it's not clear whether the government will not make interventions like this in the future. And in part, because I think this might become a politicized issue, just like it is in the US, where you're seeing, you know, Donald Trump saying all kinds of things and his followers support him. And just the same with the government here. I mean, depending on your political persuasion, you might think that what the government is doing is either enact or not. Um, On one hand, I think it's clear that the government wasn't prepared. And I think the public can forgive the government for that. But on the other, the more that they kind of deny and lie and try to obfuscate by making rebuttals like this, the more that they might, the tide might actually start turning. So I don't think it's clear. I think we'll see.
0: Well, What intrigued me about the response was not so much the things that rebutted, but the things that it didn't. it left open the idea. It didn't sort of uh, quash it at all. The no-deal Brexit planning was indeed responsible for a lack of preparedness for diverting energies in the wrong direction. It says nothing about the criticism of how austerity had, had left this country unprepared. So if you if you put out a denial, but then there are certain massive claims hugely politically damaging claims even more damaging than getting the wrong week in january yes, exactly if you doesn't tackle, that just draw attention to it
2: if you tackle the fact that it was the wrong week in january then
0: the omissions become quite glaring it's like oh we forgot to mention brexit and austerity so so nina do you think that that actually that it's, it's almost a sort of tacit admission that yes those things were a factor
1: yeah, I don't actually I don't even think that's very controversial. I mean, if you look at what the government was doing in January, you know, it was largely celebrating uh the fact that Brexit had actually been formalized. They were preoccupied with a cabinet reshuffle, um, you know, and then they were saying things like there's no need to test, test, test because we're going to develop herd immunity soon after that. So I don't, I don't think it's controversial at all to say that the government was distracted and had its eye off the ball because they were concerned with Brexit. I mean, they Can you
0: imagine know. if we said back in, in June 2016, we're going, well, of course, another problem with Brexit is it's going to distract the government, thus leading to thousands of unnecessary deaths. From from a <laughs> uh, from a virus like that would have that would have been I think that would have been dismissed as hard hardcore Ramoning. Um Francis, the government's poll ratings have begun to dip uh, down to fifty two percent from fifty nine percent last week. Confidence in their ability to deal with the crisis um, that's not massive. But do you think stories like this and poll ratings like that will sort of I mean yeah, what's done is done, but will they spur them into more effective action? going forward, or will it just spur them into publishing more angry blog posts?
3: The way it's going at the moment is to spur them into um, fighting among themselves. Um, I mean, we seem to have multiple factions um, and briefings and counter-briefings going on. We've got the Telegraph desperately issuing lots and lots of of articles by all and Sundry saying how wonderful Boris is. Um and at the same time now we've got the Sunday Times saying actually Boris has made lots of mistakes and um yeah, there's a fair amount of Gove building going on, which is annoying. Um so I am actually not very hopeful. I I don't like the way the government is fragmenting. I think they should be pulling together on this and, and increasingly I don't think they are.
0: Well the pressure is on to reopen the economy. Um, thankfully we don't actually have people with guns in the street demanding it but it's certainly it's certainly out there and the Tony Blair Institute published a report um, offering various versions of, um, from hard lockdown to hard open um, and kind of ballot saying what kind of uh, state that would leave the economy in which parts do you think the government could release from lockdown safely first what would I'm not sure if you saw the the Tony Blair report but Do you think that's right about what the first wave would be?
3: Schools, realistically. Um, I mean, there's evidence from other countries that actually having schools open doesn't really cause that much of a problem. Iceland has never closed their schools and yet they've been extremely effective. So certainly if I was looking at it, that's where I would start because... um, even though parents are, you know, trying to homeschool, they're also trying to work from home. And if you've got parents working from home, and at least if you can get the kids out of the house, you've got a chance of doing some work, which would help. Um, so I guess that that's where they would start and that would be the least disruptive.
0: Well, the report had this sort of, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if this, is, if this is totally accurate, but this extra, extraordinary kind of difference between a hard lockdown and a soft lockdown, I think the hard lockdown was 65% of the economy, economic activity, Soft lockdown, it goes up to ninety percent, and then soft open is ninety five percent. So actually, the the big difference is between kinds of lockdown, and the school seems is presumably the the, the factor there.
3: Yeah, I think it is. Um, the other thing though was um, they were doing things like um, fairly intrusive tracing and testing as part of both the soft and hard op- opens. Um, certainly in the version that I saw, um, when there was immediate pushback on that, saying this is really quite intrusive and how are you going to make sure that people carry their smartphones and, and, they, and respond to their contact tracing and all the rest of it? I mean, how are you going to enforce that? Um, so, I suppose Tony, Tony yeah. Blair
0: as, a, as an ID card man. Mm. It's, it's
3: heading re- in is that direction less bothered. yeah yeah it's heading in that direction and you know it'd be quite something of a public health crisis at last forced the british public to accept id cards that they have been resisting ever since world war ii
0: i would yeah i could possibly i would possibly make that bargain right now <laughs> i may regret it i may regret it later but I, if someone was like you can go out if you have an id card I'd, i i might take it
3: I know, but a- just imagine the articles in the Spectator and the Sun.
0: I'd rather not. Sh- is, that, is that all right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure nobody has temporarily surrendered civil liberties to get out of a short-term fix and later regretted it. I'm sure that's <laughs> never happened. <laughs> let's move on from the day-to-day crisis and take a bit of a longer view on corononomics. The crisis has already knocked every Conservative spending plan off the rails and replaced them with record levels of spending in order to keep the economy afloat. But will we need even bigger thinking to reconstruct the economy afterwards? Perhaps a wholesale break with the market-led economics of the past 40 years. Francis, it seems that Western governments have had interventionism thrust on them whether they like it or not. Oh. Who's, who's making a good job of it? <laughs>
3: Actually, um, they all seem to be kind of rather resisting it, Um, which is weird, because actually, if you look at what's going on, we talk about market led economy, it's the markets that are giving up on (laughs) on being free markets. I mean, the amount of intervention going on in markets right now far exceeds anything going on in the economy. Um, You know, I mean, you've got central banks basically running the show. Um, and while that's going on, I mean, what kind of market-led economy have we got anywhere? I can't see all the fuss is about myself. I mean, why don't you just kind of spend a lot of money on sorting this out and stop worrying?
0: Would, do you think some governments are just uh, just responding better? Or, or, or do you were saying that basically the role of the governments is actually far less significant than the role of the of the banks at this stage.
3: No, I'm not saying that. I think, but I think that the central bank role in this, central bank's role in this is actually hugely important. Um, in, in that, because what they're doing basically is keeping a, an absolute lid on anything the markets can get up to and doing it um, in a way that says basically we are saving you, which markets will always respond to. Of course, we will save you, and you know markets will kind of fall neatly into line which is exactly what's happening um which actually gives governments a bit of a free pass and they actually need to respond to that by saying we are just going to do whatever it takes to support our economies central banks will back us up because and the markets will let them do it because the markets haven't got any choice
0: the situation that we're, that we're looking at is a, is a it's a global deep global recession um and obviously no country can do it can recover alone on whose recovery does does Britain's depend? Who are the countries that really, if they don't bounce back, nobody
3: bounces back? China. And unfortunately, there's a lot of rhetoric going on at the moment, which you would like to damage China, that would want to impose reparations on them, that would want to impose sanctions on them, and actually that would be an incredibly stupid thing to do, because when the Chinese economy catch, sneezes, the whole whole world catches a cold. Um, I mean, the other economy, of course, that's hugely important is the United States. But I don't think we should underestimate the effect of China in this.
0: Well, austerity was, as you said earlier, a terrible response to the financial crisis of 2008. And it was mentioned in the Sunday Times report as one of the reasons where Britain was in poor shape this time. But obviously, when, when you do have huge amounts of debt, when there's been all this emergency spending, there will absolutely be the return of some pressure to to balance the books. From the kind of people that, that didn't think they did anything wrong last time. Do you think, will the public swallow it again? Because so much of the reason why austerity was successful was because Labour uh, and economists like yourself couldn't, you know, couldn't convince the public at large to reject austerity. But do you, do you think that they'll, they'll take it again?
3: Well, that's an interesting one because you could say that the austerity freaks last time had a bit of help because on one hand they had an absolute disaster going on in Greece Um, and they also had a very helpful paper from a a Harvard economist who should have known, a pair of Harvard economists who should have known better, um, which turned out to be fatally flawed, but by the time that was discovered it had already done its damage. Um, And those, those two things played into an austerity narrative that was primarily ideological in origin. That basically said, you have got to cut the the size of the state. You states you've got to get spending under control, otherwise we will end up like Greece. And you know we were saying, but it, we're not actually like Greece. <laughs> um, And uh, but it was kind of falling on deaf ears. And I still hear that trotted out from time to time, beginning to hear it a bit more at the moment. We're going to have to get this debt under control. Otherwise, the whole place will blow up and we'll have hyperinflation and debt collapses and defaults and what have you. And I'm going, look, if the entire world has got ballooning debt and deficits, every country in the world, then where are these bond vigilantes who are going to um, dump our currency and dump our debt going to go?
2: that is precisely the that is precisely the point um it, it's it's bang on francis because the the when everyone is running high deficits there isn't the one country like in there was in greece for them to concentrate on and sort of do a little bit of financial assassination so they can make a profit at the other end so you you simply end up with a different equilibrium that's what happens When it happens everywhere, you simply end up with a different equilibrium, and still some countries will look like better risks, and others will look like worse risks. But it will be at a different
0: level. Uh, Alex, we're all coping day to day at the moment, and economics on this scale baffles most voters at the best of times. Do you think that there's going to be a public appetite for a new economics, you know, a global new deal, thinking about these these really huge shifts, or... Or is it just or is it destined to be sign sort of a, a niche cause I, I think in practical terms there are
2: things that it will be really hard to row back from so you know when you have every politician from every party accepting unanimously that ninety four quid is not enough to live on a week, it's really difficult to go you know to reverse from that when you've uh, gathered every single homeless person in the space of a week and put them up in a hostel somewhere something you you said before would take 10 years it it's very difficult to then say well the virus is over now so off you go back to your street corner so so i think the practical economics will be forever changed
0: uh, Nina, it's hard to make firm predictions here, but what do you think um, this new economic era will look like when the when the lockdowns are lifted? what do you think um, are going to have to be top priorities uh, in order to try and kind of get the get the world economy back on its feet?
1: yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm not an economist, but I would just echo what Francis has already said about how unprecedented this is if you look at you know crises in the past most recently 2008 um, you know the whole economy has been shut down now in a way that it's never never happened before in 2008 you still had people going to work um, now with the entire unless you own a supermarket or you know our company producing ventilators or PPE um, entirely good industries are going to go under because they still have their overheads to meet. Um, And the longer they're out of action, you know, the longer they're going to become untenable. And I think that the government response actually has been astonishingly quick. And I think they learned that from 2008. If you look at what has happened in the US and what's happened in the Eurozone and here in the UK. But the question is, how long can the government keep propping up the economy? And I, I completely hear what Francis is saying about how all these countries are all countries around the world are, are going into debt, but will there be a reckoning? And I imagine that at some point when lockdown is over, somebody is going to have to pay. And I imagine that, you know, either there might be some kind of increase in taxation, more austerity, or some kind of wealth tax. I don't know if that's the right course, but I don't imagine there will be a universal debt jubilee. I I I, I really should.
2: don't. Well, for, for, I'm, I'm
0: very very keen on the idea of a debt jubilee Francis what do you think of the of the likelihood of writing off government debts
3: I think it depends on the country um, I think that there are some developing countries where some kind of debt forgiveness will have to happen there's not really any doubt about that um, it's only a question of when the IMF at the moment is saying death, debt relief debt forbearance is more important right now but that doesn't mean there won't be a reckoning later on Um As far as developed countries are concerned, you have to bear in mind that an awful lot of this debt is going to be owned by central banks. I mean, just about everything we're issuing at the moment is actually being swallowed up by the central banks. So, again, I am wondering why there has to be a reckoning. Um, I look at the kind of debt levels that Japan has been living with for a quarter of a century and I think, why are we so terrified of public debt? I look at the levels that we had during during and after the world wars and think we are no, still nowhere near that. So I, I I don't really buy this kind of sort of austerity mania much. Um, I think it's largely ideological. It's driven by um, stoking irrational fears of hard cases. So the what happened in 2009-10 was very much stoked by what was happening in Greece. There'll probably be a hard case or two in this crisis. I'm, I'm watching Argentina with some interest right now. Um, and the danger is that the austerity maniacs will, will seize upon those and say if we don't clamp down on our debt as developing developed countries with sovereign central banks, we will end up like Argentina, which is not remotely credible. But why why, why Argentina at the moment? Um, Argentina is already defaulting, and its creditors have just rejected a debt restructuring.
0: And what industries do you think are going to be are going to suffer most in, the, in this next period? Which which do you think are either going to need enormous help from governments and banks, or are simply going to go to the wall? If we're trying to sort of imagine what the what the next phase looks like,
3: it's quite hard, isn't it, to actually work out what the post-virus economy will look like. And um, and to an extent, there's there's a choice here about what we want it to look like. I mean, do we, for example, want to rethink the way we work so that transport moving around the place and you know issuing a lot of um, fossil fuel fumes um, becomes less important do we want to retain some of the benefits of the lockdown as in kind of clearer air and less pollution and things like that do we want to hang on to those because if so it's an opportunity really to rethink industries like airlines and um, even you know um, it's sort of Uh, cars and things to think about do we really want to do this and if so then those industries are in for for a reckoning and and a a fundamental change in the way they operate that doesn't I think mean they'll disappear but it does mean there may have to be some kind of fundamental change but I think this this um, shutdown actually hurts service industries more and there are a lot of Service industries, which may find it very difficult to recover from this, Um, the events industry, which died overnight the moment that um, large gatherings were banned and um, is going to be by far the last to be given a green light. And by that time, I think an awful lot of the companies that were active in that space may well simply have folded.
0: Yeah, I mean, somebody that that, that has a lot to do with... um... My work has a lot to do with the music industry, just that whole, obviously I'm thinking of like the concert industry, but then you've got, you know, academic conferences, comic conventions, you know, anything which just involves large amounts of people, you know, travelling from long distances to gather together. It's just, I've spent so much of my life in in exactly those spaces.
3: And and I think we are learning how to do it, to do those in a way that doesn't involve people traveling long distances and all gathering together in one space. And it may well be, Nina might have different views on this, but it may well be that we'll opt to carry on doing things in this more virtual way, more online and so forth, and not gather big conferences together to the same extent. Um, But I think also Just the ability to do it. So, you know, this kind of hysteresis effect where the ability to do things just gradually declines in the economy as companies fold and people who work for those companies um, go and do other things and their skills diminish. Um, You know, by the time an industry has been essentially shut down for a long period of time, and and I think for the events industry, we are talking a very long period of time, um, it's very difficult for it to recover. It can take quite a long time.
0: Well, I, I can at least say after uh, after the weekend that music festivals are not quite the same no. online.
3: Well, there is that, of course. I mean, you no, know, as we are humans in the end, and we still do like gathering together. The, the, you know, we need the buzz and the vibe. I'm a classical musician myself. Never to go to a the live concert concert again would be torture really you know to be participating in live music making and and present at it is it is wonderful so you know I'm hopeful that eventually it will come to life again but I am concerned about the skills loss and the loss of companies because I think you know actually getting things moving again might might be quite difficult.
0: As everyone knows, if you really want the truth about what's going on with the COVID crisis, you avoid the MSM shills who are all in the pocket of big face masks and listen to the people who really know what's what. Maverick celebrities (laughs) on Twitter, oversharing aunts and uncles on Facebook. (laughs) COVID-19 has proved a godsend for the bullshit industry. How else would we know that Bill Gates' mind control vaccines or 5G master are to blame? or The whole thing is a hoax made up by the Democratic Party. Despite efforts to silence the cranks, Facebook is still teeming with claims that hairdryers, garlic water and holding your breath are effective countermeasures, while celebrities, including Woody Harrelson and MIA, have boarded the bollocks train. Nina, your book is about disinformation. Do you think right now we're seeing mostly disinformation, uh, which I think as deliberate lies spread with malicious intent, or misinformation, which is people sincerely not knowing what the fuck they're talking about? you know, is is it necessarily, should we think of, I don't think, for example, that, that Woody Howson is working for a state actor. Um, so how, wh- what's the sort of balance there, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, we actually, this is the perfect case study for how dangerous our information ecosystem has become. And we're actually seeing the whole gamut. So we're seeing disinformation perpetrated by the whole range of actors, including state actors, to scammers and crooks, uh, conspiracy theorists, and we're also seeing misinformation, which is the spread of false information, naive or through people's misplaced beliefs. Um, On kind of state actor level, you're seeing a long-running trope um, that actually comes from the Cold War when the Soviets... Uh, spread the lie that HIV-AIDS was a man-made virus created by the U.S. Army. So you've basically been seeing Russia pushing that disinformation about COVID-19 as well. Um, You're seeing it in domestic influence operations where, for example, like you already mentioned, Trump has been saying that this has been a democratic hoax. Um, And then you have your conspiracy theorists and influencers who just have so much um, of a big audience right now who just want to push kind of whatever they believe is behind this. So you have the whole gamut of everything that our information ecosystem has become around COVID-19.
0: Well, Corona villain of the week was Eamon Holmes, who on this morning appeared to support the idea that 5G could be responsible for the outbreak because he has, quote, an inquiring mind and doesn't just follow the state narrative. Uh, for his inquiring mind, he's been reprimanded by ITV and Ofcom, but if he ever wants it, a show on RT is surely his for the asking. Do you think this kind of soft conspiracism, not the full corkboard crisscross with red thread stuff, but, you know, just asking questions, uh, is as dangerous as the hard stuff? Almost because it just seems so reasonable that Eamon Holmes does not seem, he's, he's not Alex Jones. You know, so you might think, oh, you know, he's just curious.
1: Yeah. And actually, it just, to me, indicates the broader kind of crisis of trust that we have in our entire society, because we're told that we're surrounded by disinformation and misinformation and that you need to be vigilant and you do need to be vigilant because we're all prone to falling for misinformation and disinformation. But the fact is then people like Eamon Holmes, you know, say that they're just asking questions, but he's asking obviously the wrong questions. So I think this kind of uh, skepticism, not wanting to believe um, facts or the mainstream kind of view is just more indicative of how kind of trust is breaking down. And this thing that he represents is something that's becoming even more prevalent in society now. So it isn't just like the crazy stuff, you know, it's the soft kind of, oh, um, what's going on here? Maybe China is behind this. So that that's something that's just on the uptick.
0: Alex, when I was at journalism college in the 90s, I, I wrote a project about conspiracy theories and it was... <laughs> <laughs> You never were in college <laughs> in the 90s. Like, You nineties. look at: day um, a And it was quite of- entertaining, you know. It's the, it the era of X-Files. Some of it was dangerous. Um, obviously, you know, you had the Oklahoma bombings. But it wasn't super mainstream. Now you've got a lot of ordinary people. They're radicalised by Fox News and Donald Trump in the States, social media everywhere. Is it just... It's very hard to get them out of that. Is it just a fact of political life that a significant minority of voters... I mean, I think absolute bare minimum, it seems to be about seven, eight percent. And obviously, in case of Republicans, it seems to go a lot higher, are just beyond reason. Do you know what? If you'd asked me three days ago, I'd have
2: said yes. Um, last night, this friend of mine, who used to be a very, very good friend for about 10 years, but then we lost touch, we've grown apart, we haven't spoken in several years. But this notification pops up that she commented on one of my posts. And I think, oh, that's nice. I wonder what what she she's saying. And it was full on Bill Gates five G, anti-vax stuff. Now, and and she used to be a, a reasonable person, so I don't,
0: I don't. It it really shocked me. I don't know what happens. No, but that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Do so we have to accept that there are just the, the almost like once they're gone. They're gone. I, I've had this experience with various sort of friends of mine, um, many of whom used to be in bands, <laughs> of, uh, where, you know, you, you, you just can't talk them back. It, it becomes, there's a psychological, um, you know, defence mechanism. Is it a backfire effect? The, the more that you challenge... Yes, the, I, I know what you mean. The, the kind of more defensive Someone they get.
2: Someone did a huge uh, study of the stories that used to be propagated by Golden Dawn, in in Greece, you know, our sort of proper far-right fascist party. And they found that in in every one of those stories was inbuilt the notion that people will tell you this isn't happening. People will tell you it's not true. People will point to this evidence, but they're lying. And so... (laughs) When the narrative has built into it this idea that whatever they tell you, it's because of this conspiracy that we're talking to you about, everything becomes confirmation. So when I go to this friend of mine and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? She, Her immediate reaction is that I was somehow bought by someone, that I've been corrupted now and worked for someone. That is
0: her, her instant explanation. So I think it's very dangerous. I always get offended when people assume that I'm... Uh, they say, I write for the Guardian. They go, oh, you're doing the bidding of your paymasters. And I was like, I wish I had a contract. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, wish they I had paymasters. contract. paid me enough to, do, to, to <laughs> issue me biddings. <laughs> to do their bidding. <laughs> Nina, what is the psychological appeal of these theories, what need do they do they satisfy?
1: There is there are studies, psychological studies, to prove that you know the human mind. When something as big as this happens, you know the entire world economy is shut down. Billions of people are affected it's hard for us to think that there isn't some kind of purpose or malicious intent or some kind of reason behind this. It's far more appealing for us to uh, put this, you know, into the hands of the Chinese or the US pharma company, rather than, you know, that this is actually just a virus. It's not man-made and it's affected the whole world. So that's one of the primary reasons that psychologists think that uh, disinformation and conspiracy spread. And of course, the other thing is that the information environment in which we now exist, in which kind of trust has already been pummeled down to an all-time low, and which we're just inundated with so much information, it's kind of hard to make sense of what's true and what's
0: not. Alex, one thing that struck me recently was that there is perhaps a kind of conspiracism light among people who think themselves quite sensible. Uh, so, for example, you know, when the Sunday Times story came out, I was, some people were telling me they were convinced that it was purely a Murdoch plot to replace Johnson with Gove.
1: Um,
0: but then, of course, Gove and every other minister attacked the story, but then presumably they find a way in which attacking the story was actually a way of, I don't know, drawing attention to the story. But, you know, it, it, it had to be, it couldn't be seen as a story, it had to be seen as a Murdoch plot because Murdoch is one of right. those people. Dominic Cummings, who we talk about a lot, but sometimes he, you would think that he is absolutely everywhere, that he never sleeps. <laughs> he has a finger in, in everything. You know, we've all, and you see these claims, that whatever in the no news is actually a distraction right for the now. real story. Well, <laughs> there's a dead cat, you know, there's a dead cat, to distract you from the other yeah, day yeah can. yeah yeah and, and and people love using words like orchestrate and architect yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on maneuvers you can see everyone wants to be a little sort of everybody wants to be a sort of pundit um who knows who can see the story behind the story do you think there is a that, that actually we should think of this as a, as a sliding scale and that we all have to be wary of that kind of thinking and believing things oh
2: yeah yeah um, I look for sure um I'm still, reeling from, I'm still reeling from Francis using the, the word gove-building. Um, uh, no, because ultimately this idea of story spreading, whether online or not, it's basically gossip. Th- that's what it is. It's the electronic form of gossip. And we all do it to a certain extent even the people who think they never gossip, occasionally gossip. So, of course, we're in a sliding scale. The problem is when, um, if you have a government like we have right now, like the United States has right now, which has actively undermined the institutions that we use as um, sort of the constants so we can determine, you know, is the BBC picking that story up? Or is, you know, when you have a government that has actively undermined all those institutions, all those international organizations that we use as constants, then you're in really dangerous water because you have actually no reference point to say this is bullshit or it would be in X, Y, and Z paper. This is true because I see it on that website. Um, and and so you're operating in an environment where you have no reference. point.
0: Nina, I wanted to, to finally, I wanted to sort of maybe mention this, uh, this story that was just going around uh, over the last day or so um, about the government or the Tory party, it's unclear which one, allegedly um, sort of manufacturing all these fake NHS accounts, um, which I saw being kind of repeated as if it was definitely true, although the source was this one guy who had a history of anti-Semitism denial um, and, and some fairly lurid claims. And yet lots of people who would think themselves quite careful uh, kind of took it as like, oh, well, this is, this is sort of definitely happening. Now, I don't know how this story is going to sort of pan out, but it certainly doesn't seem to be one that you should immediately believe. So it suggests that kind of media literacy and sort of social media literacy is actually sort of incredibly hard how do you you can perhaps teach young people uh, at school but i mean how do you actually get people to just to sort of pause to check the source to look at the, somebody to look at the twitter feed to think is anyone else picking up on this story does the story is the story consistent like that's quite a lot for ordinary people to do
1: yeah, it, it is a lot. And because it is quite a lot for ordinary people to do and because of the kind of way which we communicate now on social media, um, that is one of the reasons why this kind of disinformation or misinformation can spread so quickly. The example you just noted is particularly alarming because it teaches us all the lesson that we need to be aware of our political biases before we retweet this kind of stuff or before we pass this kind of information on and I think I would note that this type of misinformation, the information environment that we can't trust, is a trend that's only going to accelerate as we go into the future. Because we're heading into kind of the age of AI, which I write about in my book, where disinformation and misinformation will be even more convincing because you're going to have content that's um, fake video and audio that's just going to be undistinguishable from the real thing. So. The crisis of disinformation, which we've seen in the last 10 years through social media, the internet and smartphones, which has really shaken geopolitics, um, it's just going to get worse in the next decade. So things like media literacy, things like um, debunking many kind of state-led lies is gonna have to become increasingly important. It's just gonna become a feature of our lives going forward. No easy answers.
0: We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. As we can find ourselves at home in order to save the world, what music, TV, books or even podcasts will take our minds off the great task at hand? Uh, Francis, you're our guest. Uh, What do you do to unwind at the moment?
3: Well, actually, I escape into the garden um, because I have rather large garden which has over the last few years become kind of rather overgrown and but ended up a bit like a wasteland and i'm kind of knocking it, it taking the opportunity to knock it into shape and rather enjoying the things i find
0: that is one of those jobs that you really do need a pandemic to sort of crack on with isn't it
3: absolutely i mean just heaven-sent opportunity really
0: um alex how about you um i was, I was thinking
2: um this week how many things i'm doing right now that are slow. And how I'm enjoying it. I'm doing a lot of slow-fermenting sourdough things. I'm planting loads of seeds and saplings. I'm um, making kimchi and pickling lots of stuff. And there's, there's something to that. There's something to projects that take days or weeks to come to fruition. In that while they're ongoing, they give you something to check on. So they're keeping your environment constantly hmm. interesting and
0: alive. Wonderful. Nina, what about you? What's your uh, escapism? Uh,
1: well, between kind of book
0: and baby. <laughs> Nothing.
1: Uh, <laughs> a pretty full on uh, non escape No. In seriousness, I think what's been really amazing has been, and this is just echoing what both Francis and Alex have said, you know, just mindfully going about your day, um, enjoying the kind of company of people around you, if you do have people around you. Um, and then, of course, uh, watching some epic series on Netflix. I mean, who hasn't <laughs> seen Tiger King yet? I've also rediscovered Fargo. Uh, it's very, very good. I'd recommend oh,
0: it's it. so good. It's one of my favorite shows. So good. Uh, so mine has my thing has actually been because uh, my concentration is not terrible but it's not uh, it's not at its best and so some, sometimes I find it hard to get into a new novel so I've been rereading old novels I read The, P- the Plague by Camus which is a fairly obvious choice at the moment <laughs> but also ca- also The Catcher in the Rye which I hadn't read since I was doing GCSE uh and turns out to be turns out to be great turns out to be better than I thought it was at 16 um and I just tweeted about it and whereas when I tweet about politics I just get loads of it's just a big headache um tweeting about tweeting about really liking a book uh turns out to be great and you end up having lots of lovely conversations with with people and it it creates a kind of nicer social media environment because people are talking mm. about things that they they love um so i would recommend rereading books it was, it was the anniversary uh, because there's some familiarity The anniversary
2: with... of jg ballard's death um yesterday so i read a couple of things, including his very short autobiography, let me tell you
0: they are very, very current i, I wouldn't i wouldn 't read high rise right now yeah <laughs> that might be that might be too much <laughs>
3: uh, I, well, I was thinking of rereading the grapes of Wrath.
0: yeah, I think reread because because you know you know, you kind of get the gist, so it gives you that confidence so even if your mind wanders a little bit you 're just like. I, I know that, you know, you, you know roughly what it's about. It's about some angry grapes. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker. Uh, look out for ways to register for our Zoom chat on Thursday, 7th of May. everyone re- who registers gets a free barrel of crude oil. Thanks to our panel. <laughs> Nina Schick, Francis Coppola, and Alexandre, who's off to change into his Romaniac's costume. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full length show this time next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at bunkerpod. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll see you next week. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Nina Schick. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Popmasters production.